Do you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a vitamin B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman with a solution for low B1, Zobria by O'Share Health. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells in your feet and legs to stop functioning properly. may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to reverse these symptoms. You can get Zobria now with new lower pricing, risk-free, by going to Z-O-B-R-I-A dot com or by calling 1-855-ZOBRIA-8. That's Zobria.com or 1-855-962-7428. Get 20% off the new lower price with coupon code Hoffman at checkout plus free shipping. Zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And today we have a, a really unique subject, a subject that uh, in my, all my years of uh, broadcasting, I don't think I've uh, touched upon in depth. Uh, and that subject is the wide gulf that still remains between medical care for men versus medical care for women. Today we're talking to the author of a great book called Doing Harm, The Truth About how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. The author is our guest, Maya Dusenberry, and she is uh, editor of the award-winning site Feministing.com. She's also been a fellow at Mother Jones Magazine, a columnist for Pacific Standard Magazine, and previously worked at the National Institute for Reproductive Health. So, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us today, Maya. Thank you for having me. Well, good. Okay, so you know, first of all, you know, a, a little background on this. Uh, you know, this is something that has really been a historical problem. And in the book, you know, you sort of trace the origins of this uh, double standard in medicine. First of all, medicine, a male-dominated profession. I mean, the 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 guys were doctors by and large. Uh, the women were nurses and midwives, uh, but that's beginning to change, fortunately. But also, there's a whole uh, double standard when it comes to approaching women's health problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think as as a layperson who came to this topic, I think I initially kind of felt like, oh, you know, I, I knew that historically this was a very male-dominated profession and... Um, but of course that is changing so much these days. And I think I had a, a false sense that, that we'd made more progress, um, than we really have. And, and diving into the research and the history, um, it really just becomes clear how, how much of these historical legacies really do continue to impact the care that, that patients receive today. Well, indeed, you know, and, and part of the problem uh, may trace back to a guy who we really put on a pedestal as, uh, you know, one of the, the top innovators in, in psychiatry, uh, really the father of modern psychiatry, Sigmund Freud. He actually did some damage. Could, can you explain how that, that might have come to be? Yeah. So in the book, I really kind of dive pretty deep into this history of 
hysteria, um, which before Freud came along. By the way, it comes was, from the Greek word for uh, womb or uterus, right? Hysteria. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And back in ancient Greek times, you know, it was thought to be caused by a wandering womb that roved around the body. And, and eventually that kind of gave way to other theories. Um, as, as we came to understand the nervous system more, it was seen as a nervous system disorder. But after Freud, there was really this kind of major shift to seeing this kind of diagnostic category that for centuries was seen as a physical disorder that disproportionately affected women. After Freud, it came to be seen as this mental disorder that caused physical symptoms. Um, and really, ever since then, there's been this kind of uh, concept within medicine that, that any unexplained symptoms can be you know, attributed to the unconscious mind of the patient. Um, and I think that 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 legacy really still impacts women and, and women have kind of always been the typical patient with psychogenic symptoms um, for really over a century now. And I, I think that that kind of stereotype um, really helps explain a lot of the stories that I was starting to hear that really got me interested in this topic of just women who were go, having to go to doctor after doctor to find somebody who took their symptoms seriously. And in the meantime, often had them, attributed to stress or depression or anxiety and or you know in in some way kind of implied it was all in their head and i think that that really is related to this history of hysteria and, and you point out in the book that it, partly at fault is the progress that's been made in medicine in coming up with uh, imaging results we can see inside the body with great precision we can do a zillion blood tests and as a result sometimes when things don't come up positive Positive findings in medicine are, are negative or bad things. Uh, it, it, we kind of revert to, we fall back on the explanation that maybe this is psychosomatic. And then we have a, a tradition uh, in psychiatry, which talks about conversion disorders, which mean that, you know, certain stressors, you know, maybe uh, uh, sexual assault or even in Freud's estimation, fantasies about uh, sexual uh, assault uh, may may cause a disturbance in the body and may manifest as weird symptoms. And you simply have to lie down on the couch and have exhaustive therapy with <laughs> Dr. Freud. And Dr. Freud will will expiate these demons, drive these demons out and, and ultimately uh, provide a cure. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's so interesting is that there there have been critiques of that idea for such a long time. You know, we've, um, you had Susan Sontag back in the seventies saying, you know, it's, it's really we, these psychological theories of disease. We really reach for them most when we don't have a good understanding of the underlying biology. And, and if you look at the history of medicine, you see that there's this long pattern of, of, as, as there's a step forward in medical knowledge or a new technology that makes visible what was once invisible, then those theories often get overturned and we realize they were wrong. And, and so it's kind of fascinating that it doesn't seem like collectively there's been much kind of learning from that history, um, which could, you know, you would think might impart some sort of uh, sense of humility about the limits of, of, what we currently know and um, a kind of default assumption that, you know, if, if, if it's unexplained right now, it probably, 
might be explained in the future once we once we know a little bit more about the human body and disease. One condition that does not have, in many cases, an objective correlate, I mean, you break a bone, okay, maybe, but uh, is pain. Uh, mm. And it turns out, uh, you know, according to your statistics, 40% of Americans suffer from one form or another of, of chronic pain, whether it be low back pain or, you know, headaches, you, you name it, the whole gamut. But women are twice as likely to suffer pain conditions as men. Uh, is there some underlying physiologic reason that maybe women are, are wired to be more uh, pain sensitive, uh, something along those lines that makes them more prone to fall into that category? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is definitely still kind of an open question um, and an area where it's clear we need more research and it's surprising that we don't already have it because for decades now, we've understood that there are real sex and gender differences in, in pain processing um, and these these clues to suggest that, yeah, there, there may be um, a biological reason for women's increased risk of chronic pain conditions. Um, you know, even some evidence that, uh, men and women may, uh, react differently to different pain treatments. Um, so, but I, yeah, I think it is, is still not totally clear what, what's the driving factor in that disparity. But, um, certainly it was, it was shocking to me to realize how, just how many people are impacted by chronic pain. You know, I think experts call it, you know, just the, the biggest health issue we have is, is chronic pain by the numbers. Um, and yet it gets so little, uh, research funding from the NIH and, and really there's a real lack of education among, um, medical students and, and training doctors, um, that I think really leaves a lot of uh, primary care doctors who are sort of on the front lines dealing with chronic pain patients kind of at a loss uh, for for how to help help them. Indeed. And so when it comes to uh, medical research, uh, unfortunately, the traditional model has been to take, uh, you know, relatively healthy young men and uh, experiment on them, you know, have them undertake uh, drug trials, and then you get a drug approval. And then uh, you administer the same medication that you would give to a 175-pound male to a 125-pound female, and, and it doesn't it doesn't work out well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that's another area where I kind of assumed that there had been more progress made than there really has been. Um, you know, of, of course, since the early 90s, there's there has been a, a good deal of progress. You know, it's now federal law that phase three clinical trials include both men and women. Um, and theoretically, or at least federally funded research is supposed to include enough women so that you can actually do a valid analysis by a sex or gender. And yet what we see is that women are still underrepresented and and probably more importantly, it's still not the norm for researchers to always do that analysis and to include that in their published results. So we're really just lacking a lot of knowledge about about really often relevant differences in men's and women's experience of the same disease or risk factors or symptoms um, or response to treatment. Well, can you give us some examples? And you, you do that uh, beautifully in the book. Uh, you enumerate uh, many cases where uh, because of uh, – Poor communication or even outright sexism, bias, 
uh, women get short shrift when they when they see doctors. Can can you share some of that with us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there are lots of kind of examples. I think one one great area that really kind of illustrates a few of the problems I think is is in the uh, area of heart disease and heart attacks, um, where there's really a, a pretty substantial amount of research showing, first of all, that there are these sex and gender differences. So women are more likely uh, to have, quote unquote, atypical symptoms when they're experiencing a heart attack, um, sometimes don't have chest pain at all. Not necessarily crushing chest pain, uh, radiating down the left arm, you know, or into the left jaw. I mean, you know, that's what we were taught in medical school. And But women may present differently. How, how might they present? They might have nausea. They might have uh, yeah, malaise. They- Mm-hmm. More likely to have nausea, jaw pain, uh, fatigue, um, and I mean even things like uh, you know the risk factors that we use to to come up with um, figuring out somebody's risk. There's now more research showing that you know a history of pregnancy complications uh, indicates future risk of heart attacks in women or autoimmune diseases. And all of these are kind of considered non-traditional risk factors, really only because for so long we were kind of treating the male experience as the norm. And, and, And so it's only in the last few decades that we're starting to recognize that women may present differently. And there's, there's now kind of starting to be recognized a whole kind of female pattern of heart disease that is still difficult to detect on traditional diagnostic tests. Um, so I, I think that those, those kind of differences explain part of why women are really underdiagnosed, undertreated for heart disease. But it's also just that we have this stereotype that, that heart disease is a male disease. Um, and so a lot of women, particularly younger women who statistically are less likely than men to, to get it are, you know, often told, well, you're young and you're a woman, you know, it must just Mm -hmm. be stress or indigestion. It could be a a panic attack. I mean, you feel breathless and you have a a pressure in the center of your chest. And it's like a 40 year old woman who comes to see me. Uh, complaining of that, that, that's actually, I got to tell you, is my preconceived notion is, um, you know, that's maybe a stress related thing. Whereas a 40 year old man, man, that's going to get my attention big time. That's yeah. a built in bias. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a woman in, in one study I read who, who put it very bluntly. She said, doctors think that men have heart attacks and women have stress. And, and that is really clear in the way, in the way that women with heart disease are often treated, including after they're diagnosed. You know, I think maybe the the more surprising is to realize that even once women are diagnosed with coronary heart disease, they often are treated less aggressively um, than their male counterparts. Right, right, because the idea being, again, is that uh, women are less likely to die of heart disease. What do the statistics actually show? Is that women and men die equally of heart disease? It's just that women get it later. Right? That's my impression. Yeah, exactly. Women just tend to get it about a decade later. And um, and so that, I mean, I think, you know, in, in some ways that's a, the, the stereotype didn't, you know, come out of nowhere it, it there there is some real reason to kind of have a higher higher uh fear that a younger man might have heart disease but 
heart disease is the leading killer of, of women. And it's, um, a leading killer at all ages. I think it was surprising to me to find that, uh, I think at every single age group, uh, heart disease kills more women than breast cancer does. And yet certainly even among patients, there's this perception that it's not a really a big threat for women. You know, to me during, during my medical career, uh, one of the most uh, salient instances of, uh, discrimination uh, has to do with uh, the frequency of hysterectomy. Uh, mm -hmm. Many, I mean, this is less the case now than when I began my medical career in, in the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, but uh, so many women underwent, quote, routine hysterectomy. In other words, they would even sometimes get an appendectomy and the doctor would say, hey, you know, I took care of your uterus, by, by the way. You know, you don't need it mm. anyway because you completed your family. You have four kids. They're grown now. So you don't need that anymore. And that, I think, is a trend that's slowly reversing. Uh, but all too often... Uh, that organ is, is just thought to be superfluous, whereas, you know, the male organ, <laughs> I think it's a double yeah. standard, you know, it's uh, getting a castration because uh, men get prostate cancer. Uh, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't fly. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think I think that's really true. And I, I do think it's it's uh, getting a little bit bigger. But I do. Yeah, I think that hysterectomy is still the the number one uh surgery that women get. And it's clear that often it's kind of, it, it continues to be sort of casually <laughs> done as, as a sort of catch all, um, fix to a lot of problems. So, you, I mean, you still hear stories of women with endometriosis who are told to have a hysterectomy to, to fix their pain when that's in fact now recognized that that's not, that is not a good, uh, treatment and it, it doesn't always fix the pain. Um, and I think it's also really reflects this, um, a more general sort of just lack of knowledge about women's bodies and, and the effects of something like that, that, you know, that we actually, we don't know that much about women's kind of routine reproductive cycles and phases, including things like menopause and uh, menstruation. And, and there's this kind of um, normalization of, of a lot of symptoms around women's reproductive organs. Yeah. I mean, I think the notion is that, uh, you know, pain is normal. Uh, women, you know, uh, are doomed to, to suffer. You know, this whole term, you know, it's kind of an archaic term, but in the 19th century, women's ailments and men would just kind of roll their eyes and, you know, yeah, my uh, wife is lying abed with a, with a, you know, a uh, hot water bottle on her abdomen because it's that time of month. Well, mm -hmm. uh, women suffer incapacitating pain uh, and there may be remediable causes. And you mentioned endometriosis. So that's a condition, uh, an inflammatory condition uh, that, um, you know, really deserves attention and, and often gets missed. How often is it? Uh, misdiagnosed. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, I think in the US now, it takes about a decade or more before somebody is diagnosed. Um, and during that time, they're often told, you know, it's just, it's normal menstrual cramps. Um, and it's, I think it's an interesting example of, of how this, and to some extent, these problems are much bigger than the medical profession, because I think one of the big problems with endometriosis is you have women who really are left without a way to gauge if, if it is normal to have, you know, excruciating pain that 
keeps you from working or getting out of bed during your, your period. Um, and unfortunately we have, you know, a lot of stigma around talking about this. And so, um, a lot of women just, just aren't left with a frame of reference. And, and then unfortunately, when they turn to the medical system and to kind of dispel those cultural myths and, and tell them, you know, no, it's not normal to have that kind of pain. Unfortunately, they often meet the, the exact same kind of normalization and dismissal. Yeah. You, you know, I think actually one of the biggest uh, gaps uh, is in the field of contraception, uh, where women are given uh, oral contraceptives uh, that uh, have a, a wide range of, of side effects uh, that women are told to accept. You know, there could be mood effects, uh, there could be a, a cancer enhancing effects, uh, there could be all kinds of pro- uh, blood clots. Uh, and I, you know, I really, I've actually said it rhetorically. I said if men were offered a male oral contraceptive with such a wide range of side effects, uh, I can't think of a man who would, who would take one of those. And yet the whole onus, uh, on, on contraception is, is on women, uh, to take these medications that may have, uh, pretty profound adverse effects in some cases, uh, including a complete reduction in libido. Uh, that's one of the side effects. Uh, mm-hmm. and yet they do it for, you know, it's for the cause. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And, and there was actually just a few years ago, uh, a study that was looking at a, a male contraceptive option that, uh, the researchers decided was they needed to stop the trial because the side effects were, were too, too bad. And, you know, you looked at the side effects and they were pretty much exactly the side <laughs> effects of the birth control pill. And, uh, millions of women were, <laughs> are currently suffering them. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's, I think it's also true that, you know, of course, of course the pill and other hormonal contraceptive options are work for some women, but I think that for those, for whom they don't work, they are often kind of their 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 reports of those side effects are often dismissed in in a very kind of familiar pattern of of you know being told oh you know it's all in your head or you you know you just you just saw those side effects and now you're getting them and 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 I think that it's very clear that if we had a medical system that really took women's complaints seriously and their symptoms seriously at this point in history we would have developed better options you know we we for 50 years have basically just had different combinations of hormonal contraceptives with very little innovation and and i think that that lack of innovation can definitely be put down to this this dismissal of of women's symptoms and and just not taken seriously their quality of life and i think some of that uh innovation, so-called innovation, is uh, driven by patent considerations. When a medication uh, goes off patent, uh, usually right. they try to come up with a, a new uh, tweak on the molecular compound so that they can earn patent protection going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. In many cases, um, replicating the side effects of the previous medications. Okay, this is a good point at which to pause because we've uh, introduced the subject of uh, a double standard uh, in medicine where women get short shrift. There are many other aspects to it that we're going to talk about in part two. The book is Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science live women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. The author we're talking to, Maya Dusenberry. 
I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.